The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. He is a research entomologist, agroecologist, farmer, rancher, and beekeeper. He is the director and founder of Blue Dasher Farm and the Ecdysis Foundation based in Esteline, South Dakota. Dr. Lundgren holds a PhD in entomology from the University of Illinois. He was formerly employed at USDA's research lab in Brookings, South Dakota. He was also honored with a presidential award for his work, and he has published over 100 peer-reviewed scientific articles. But Dr. Lundgren was suspended from his federal position after presenting his research on the hopes of regenerative agriculture and the problems associated with neonicotinoid pesticides. Dr. Lundgren has never stopped believing in the power of regenerative agriculture to transform our food production systems. And at Blue Dasher Farm, he and his team combined cutting-edge science with hands-on experience to remove the barriers to the adoption of regenerative agriculture. At the farm, they say, we are operating a regenerative farm and scientific research hub designed to help foster a revolution in our food system. I recently heard Dr. Lundgren's excellent presentation at the 2021 Beyond Pesticide Forum, during which he gave an excellent explanation of regenerative agriculture, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Lundgren. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm delighted to bring you back. You were my guest way back in 2015, and at the time we were talking about entomology and the way we think about bugs. And I think that would be a good refresher for our listeners, you know, to just sort of bring us back to where we left off then with a little refresher on how we think about bugs and pests. We see a bug, we want to kill it, but that's not the way we should be looking at them, is it? No, not a bit. We often think of life or biodiversity in terms of pests, don't we? The things that are causing us problems. And instead of understanding that of the life that's out there, the pests are just the thinnest sliver of that pie. And when all of our management decisions are focused on that thin sliver, we forget the implications of our management decisions on everything else that's out there. And that unless we're managing everything else that's out there, we're actually, those other species are the reasons why we do or don't have pests. And so if we start managing life on our farms and in our lives, we find that pest problems really start to disappear. They just don't have the same issues with these things. So you had said then that for every species of a pest, of an insect pest, there are 1,700 beneficial insects. Yes, that's correct. And we can bandy about numbers as long as the day is, but at the end of the day, what the point is, is that there is a lot more species that are helping us or that we simply can't live without than there are pests. And that wasn't very clear at the time, but those species were losing 
at a rate that planet Earth has never experienced before, right? I mean, the insect apocalypse is very real. We're losing uh, life on this planet. 60% of the biomass of insects over the last 27 years was one estimate, and I think that's been confirmed by others. We often hear about, oh, if we don't do something, if we don't change something, we're going to lose topsoil in 50 years. You know, and that's true. But if we don't do something and do something quick, we're going to lose most life on planet Earth in 50 years. And so, yeah, all of these issues are being really knitted together into the much broader picture of the crisis that this planet's facing right now. Absolutely. And I sense that we don't have much time to make an important shift. Yeah, I estimate if we don't get agriculture on to a different path within the next 10 to 15 years, we may be SOL, we may be out of luck. So. Wow. Well, you had forwarded to a group of us an important paper. It was titled Regenerative Agriculture, Merging Farming and Natural Resource Conservation Profitability. And in the introduction of this paper, you say that the development of synthetic fertilizers, hybrid crops, genetically modified crops, and policies that decouple farmer decisions from market demands all helped create a modern food production system, which reduces the diversity of foods that are produced, and that this simplification of our food system contributes to climate change, rising pollution, biodiversity loss, and damaging land use changes. How does our farming in this industrial way contribute to climate change? You said that exactly correctly. Farming isn't what's doing it. It's how we're farming. So it becomes very easy to pick on farmers, number one. And the reality is that, honestly, we're not going to save this planet without farmers. And so I think that that's a really, really important point. And I'm glad you said it the way you did. How has farming changed things? As we've gone to a more simplified food production system, we've eliminated a lot of the life in landscape. So where once there was hundreds of species, now there's two or three. You know, your corn, your soybeans, your cows. And that has dramatic effects on what the planet is able to do in terms of ecosystem services and the functioning of ecosystem. And so the only way that we're going to fight these planetary scale problems is that we need to start figuring out how to farm in a way that encourages life rather than fights against it. Hmm. Back in 2015, when we spoke, we were focused on neonicotinoid seed coatings. And back then you said that it was nearly impossible for farmers to even find seed that hadn't been coated with the neonicotinoids, especially when we were talking about corn and sunflowers. And here we are five or six years later. I want to revisit that same question. Are we finding that farmers have an easier ability to find these non-neonicotinoid-coated seeds, or are we pretty much in the same boat we were? So most of the seeds that are planted on field crop acres in the U.S. are still treated. But 
at the same time, for farmers that want to plant untreated seeds, it's pretty easy to find those. It may not be the neighbor who's sold you your seeds your whole life, but you don't have to look real hard in order to find untreated seeds for nearly every crop that you could plant. Well, that is encouraging because five or six years ago, it was harder, I think, for farmers to find yeah. those seeds. So I think so too, yeah. So this is progress. That's important. I wanted to bring something else forth from this paper before we dive into the nitty-gritty specifics of regenerative agriculture, because it stopped me in my tracks. And I'm really appreciative that you mentioned this. You said farmers experience the highest suicide rate of any profession in the United States, a rate nearly fivefold higher than the general public. And the driving depression rates are related to conventional. And when I say conventional, I mean, again, that industrial method of production, those practices. Why is that? I once, uh, one of my friends tweeted that a statement that really captures a lot of it. I am a farmer. Every year I borrow $800,000 to make $850,000. Farmers are strung so thin and their margins are so thin for as long and as much investment as they make. So, I mean, we've got to be giving farmers a better route to take. You know, I mean, no farmer is encouraging their children to get into this business because it is. It's a real yoke. So with regenerative operations, it keeps people on the farm. It keeps families on the farm. It diversifies revenue streams. It increases the resilience of the whole operation. Hmm. So it's a really good solution. All right. Well, this is a great segue then into talking about what regenerative agriculture is. And just like the word sustainability has been co-opted, it seems from my perspective, I think that the word regenerative agriculture also faces the risk of being co-opted. Everybody wants to be sustainable. Everybody wants to be regenerative. But what is regenerative agriculture exactly? I think I can distill it down to outcomes. Regenerative ag increases soil health. It increases life and biodiversity on a farm while producing nutritious food profitably. So there's four elements there. But within those four elements, you get so many other things are linked, right? Resilience of rural communities, the rebirth of rural communities is tied to this. Social wellness and equity are involved in this. Improved water relationships on watershed scales, carbon sequestration and fighting climate change using our food system. But all of them are fundamentally tied to those four things. What I thought was so interesting from this paper was what to me seemed disconnected, and that was the you mentioned that regenerative fields had 29% lower grain production, but 78% higher profits over quote unquote traditional corn production systems. So, again, helping people understand that the traditional in this sense means that industrial method of corn production. So, how could you have less grain production but higher profits? Right. Well, 
Because it, it kind of gets back to that tweet that I had mentioned earlier. These farmers are spending most of their revenue on input costs to keep their systems productive. Because when you eliminate life from your farm, you have to replace it with something in order to keep that ecosystem functioning. And that's what agrochemicals do. You know, that's what pesticides do. That's what fertilizers do, is keep a broken system working. And so these farms that end up doubling their profits, and we ended up seeing that same relation in almonds out in California. We've just finished that study. And what they're doing is they're in reducing their input costs, lower seed costs, lower fertilizer costs, while either keeping the same or increasing their profits which, through marketing their products a little bit differently. Or some of them would just sell their corn at the local coop. A lot of them end up going and selling them to their neighbors or keeping that money in, in their own community, and that increases their profits. I think we also need to be very careful in interpreting this, okay, because regenerative food systems are very, I mean, this is an explosive and but nascent time. And so there's a lot of people that are doing some really exciting things to reveal to us what the potential of regenerative is. But there's also some people that are making mistakes, and even the best of them are still twice as profitable, but may not be maximizing their yields or what have you. And so we don't have to experience a yield drag associated with regenerative. We can, quote unquote, feed the world using this approach. But what we end up seeing is that the productivity ends up having big error bars in a regenerative system. Whereas in a conventional system, those error bars are much more narrow because it's been so automated and standardized. So things to think about and, uh, yep, certainly interpret. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. And just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, research entomologist, agroecologist, farmer, rancher, and beekeeper. He is the director and founder of Blue Dasher Farm and the Ecdysis Foundation based in Esteline, South Dakota. Well, I want to talk about this point about lower production, because as you mentioned, this whole umbrella term of we got to feed the world, you know, we've got to keep on increasing yields. And yet one of the things that I found in your paper that was so interesting was that you've got more biodiversity with a regenerative farm. So you're not going to have just this monoculture crop, you're going to have many different crops. And that's Mm -hmm. wonderful, as long as you've got markets for those crops, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, That's right. So what a regenerative system does is it stacks enterprises, and that increases the resilience of the operation. So even like combining different crop species as well as animals and cropland and things like this. What that does is it increases the number of revenue streams and it increases the resilience of a farm because you're not beholden to market prices on one particular crop, right? If somebody stops eating soybeans in China we don't see the markets plummet for beans over here or something along these lines. So that's one of the sources of resilience that regenerative food systems end up providing us. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to bring up also from this paper, and because you are an entomologist, 
is the fact that insect pest populations were more than tenfold higher on the insecticide-treated farms than on the insecticide-free regenerative farms. And that seems like that would be just the opposite, right? Like, how could this be? Right. That's not supposed to happen, right? Because pests are inevitable. They're, this is what I was taught in graduate school, and is that pests, if you're farming, you're going to have a pest problem. And so the best way of doing this is or monitoring or minimizing the risk of that is by counting insect pests as frequently as you can in order to make sure because and then when they reach a certain population threshold you spray them you get them out of there but what these regenerative farmers have shown me is that pests are not inevitable that pests are the problem if you're managing for life on your farm if you're managing for soil health on your farm pests just are not the issue and it's really led me to the conclusion that pests are never the problem. They're always a symptom. And unless you solve the problem, you're constantly on this treadmill of additional inputs that you have to dump into that system. Yeah. So we have to get off of that if we're going to, if we're going to have viable farms into the future. Right. Well, it's interesting because what I see happening in the Midwest is this increased use with genetically modified commodity crops, corn and soybeans, cotton as well, I'm sure canola, is this increased use of not only glyphosate because of the Roundup Ready trait, but also now 2,4-D and dicamba. And what we're finding is that the fruit and vegetable crops or anything that's not engineered to be resistant to these specific pesticides or herbicides, we're finding that we are killing the foods that we need for our survival. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the problems of drift and where you see this headed in the future. Well, drift is a real issue. Well, the over-reliance of a very small suite of chemicals is, is a huge issue just to start with. But Yes, pesticides do not stay put, right? They get off. They go off into the environment and they contaminate other plants. They get into water, surface waters, ground waters. They get into us. They get into so many different places in the environment that they were not intended to. And yeah, the drift issues with things like dicamba are very real. It's really decimating a lot of other other farmers within communities that decide that they don't want to use these chemistries. So, but it, it's more than that. Even I mean, it's reducing floral diversity out in the landscape so that bees don't have anything to eat, and quite frankly, these have direct effects on higher organisms. We've done that work to show that. Dicamba ends up having some effects on learning capabilities of honeybees and things. So mm. we're we're in trouble. Yeah, we are. Unless enough people become aware of what makes up a regenerative farming system and really start en masse, you know, raising their voices and talking to their legislators. And of course, we have the farm bill every five years. And 
What are we seeing with farm policy? Do we see a shift and a greater awareness of regenerative agriculture and a folding in to our farm bill to support this way of farming? I don't think that regulators understand what regenerative is yet. In fact, even the scientific community and and farming communities, I think, are a little confused about what regenerative systems are. So we really are kind of on the front edge of something here. And we need to be careful as we move forward. But I do see on a policy level, you know, investment in things like carbon credits and promotion of you know, diversifying our cropping systems and things like this. So I think these are steps in the right direction. I'm not sure that they're being done in a systems perspective that's really necessary to avoid cheating, but at least it's a step in the direction that we need to be going. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your specific setup. So you've got the Ecdysis Foundation and Blue Dasher Farm, but you've got farms all over the country that you're working with. For example, you mentioned the situation out in California with almonds. Tell me how you're set up. Tell me about the foundation versus the different farms. Well, when I quit the USDA, it was clear that in order to usher in a sort of revolutionary change in our food system, we needed to do science differently. And we needed different metrics of success for the scientific community that was working in this. And first and foremost, scientists have to become connected again. Scientists have to be farmers. And so we started two things both at the same time. We started a Dices Foundation, which is a scientific organization, but we also started a demonstration farm in regenerative ag. And so now here in Esteli, in South Dakota, we've got the headquarters of Ecdysis, where a bunch of scientists come in, and part of their job is getting that firsthand experience with farming. And so we work entirely on farm with some of the most innovative farmers in the country. And our goal is to, this year we're on, I think, 200 farms documenting everything from soils and water and plants and microbes and insects and birds and economics, all the way to, so where we want to be is conducting essentially uh, the largest agroecological experiment that's ever been done. We're going to be on 1,000 farms across North America by 2023, and we'll be answering two very distinct questions. Number one, we want to show whether or not regenerative always works compared to a conventional counterpart in different ecoregions and different food systems. Does this always work? And number two, we want to show the best strategy for transitioning. What sorts of practices are farmers employing that get them to successful regenerative system and all of those wonderful outcomes of carbon sequestration and reversing desertification and increasing profits and all of those things. How quick and how how to reduce the risk of that transition. So it's a pretty ambitious project, but it's kind of what we've been gearing up for for the last six years, six growing seasons. 
and we've developed entirely new technologies and approaches in order to get us there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Your whole model of operation is so fascinating, and your websites are great, and I'm going to provide links to those. But one of the big issues to me has been the infiltration of special interests into the scientific body of research. Even the questions that we ask, say, at a land-grant institution, how is your operation being funded to keep it truly research-based without these competing industrial or interests that are profit-oriented? Yeah, we've been trying to be extremely careful about this because our integrity and our credibility are really important. Our startup was crowdfunded. I mean, the reason that Ecdysis is here is because of a crowdfunding campaign where farmers and beekeepers and other stakeholders, through small donations, ended up bankrolling a research facility in regenerative ag. That's never happened before. And so most of our support ends up coming through foundations and things. We're trying to do one of the most expensive experiments I think that's ever been tried. And so we're really um, trying to rethink how we approach funding our science to make sure that there is absolutely no strings attached. That is absolutely crucial to us and our success. So, yeah, that's how we've been rolling, and and we've got a pretty darn good model for moving forward with that. And I think, too, the freedom to ask the questions as you see them being necessary, rather than having the questions given to you with answers that may or may not be important in a right. in a climate crisis that we're facing right now. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, we just have a couple of minutes, and I want to put the ball in your court. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know? And of course, our listeners are nationwide, so everyone's dealing with different ecosystems. But is there anything you'd like to bring forth from your work and your observations over the past decade that we may not have covered? Yeah, you know, I'm a scientist, right? And so data is really important. And it's absolutely necessary, but it is not sufficient to change a human heart. And that's in mind, right? And that is ultimately what we have to do in order to correct the trajectory that we're on as a planet right now. So I get asked, you know, okay, John, you're, you've got a magic wand that you can wave. How are you going to change things? And what I tell people is, what would I do? I would wave that magic wand and make everybody walk barefoot in a field and connect with the world again, with the natural world again, because that is going to have more of a profound impact than any scientific study that I'm going to be able to do. And that's not to say that the science isn't important, but we have to be connecting people with their food again, don't we? I think so. We're going to have to close on that note, but I want to thank you so much for bringing forth these important issues and for doing the research you are. I got to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, research entomologist, agroecologist, farmer, rancher, and beekeeper. He is the director and founder of Blue Dasher Farm and the Ecdysis Foundation in Esteline, South Dakota. We will provide links to your 
Foundation as well as Blue Dasher Farm so everyone can keep up with the great work that you're doing and contribute to this if they are so moved, as well as your research paper, which outlines very well the regenerative agriculture and why it is so necessary today. So thank you again, Dr. Lundgren. I'm so glad to have you back. Oh, thank you for having me. And yep, good luck to you and everybody who's listening. Thanks. Thanks.